Aloha, welcome to the Outrigger Waikiki, where we're back with another Surfers in Residence. My name is Marco, and I'll be your host today, and for Tammy Moniz, big mahalo for everyone for the opportunity to sit down and talk with surfer, skier, and award-winning photographer, Brown Cannon. Welcome. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Yeah, aloha, and thank you for bringing your latest book here, North. Yes. Which yeah. we will definitely spend a good amount of time talking about a little bit later. But first, we should start the journey at the beginning. Where are you from, Brown? Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Oh. I was born at Porter Hospital in 1970. Oh, 70 also, right? There we go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so what were some of your favorite things about coming from Colorado? Colorado, to me, is um, a lot about friends and family. Um, big landscapes, wide open, vast skies, afternoon thunderstorms. Um, I love the rivers. And, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the mountains with our family, um, and I lived in the mountains for a number of years, uh, worked on the ski patrol there in Steamboat Springs. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, but when I think back, I, I think family and friends at this point because I don't live there anymore. All right. And what brought you to Hawaii and when? So Hawaii is the only place that I've spent part of every year of my life. And... We started coming here when I was essentially born. Uh, my family's been coming here for, you know, many, many decades. And so I've always had family and friends on the island. And then my dad and his brother, a friend of his, bought into a place at Malaikahana Beach over kind of near Kuvuku okay. um, in the early 70s. Oh, and wow. so that house was in the family for many, many years, all the way through COVID, actually. And so that's where we would go. We would uh, spend our lives, you know, and days as kids running around the beach in the shore pound over at Malekahana Beach. And that was pretty much what formulated my love for the ocean, even though I grew up in Denver. Oh, wow. That's so fortunate. And when, and when did you really start surfing? I didn't start surfing until a bit later. I lived over here in the beginning of the 90s for a year and a half uh, with a friend of mine. We, we happened to... Uh, convince my family that the house needed a little bit of updating and so uh we lived in the house and painted the house and redid the floors and you know worked on that house and then the neighbor said hey we'd like you to work on our house so we we worked on the neighbor's house and then the next house and oh wow we ended up we ended up kind of hanging out for a year and a half and in that time was when I really got into surfing prior to that I was just I had a, a love for the water um, but we spent tons of time. Every day I'd wake up, Dad, let's go, let's go. We go over to Makapu or go to Sandy Beach. And so the surfing was kind of an evolution. But uh, I knew that eventually I would, I would be a surfer. And I was that kid in Colorado that no one could quite understand because my walls were, were filled with surfing posters. <laughs> Robbie Nash and, you know, all the kind of old greats and maybe a couple surf ski posters as well. But mm -hmm. I was definitely in some ways kind of out of place. And were you gravitating there towards skiing or snowboarding? Skiing. To ski? Okay. Yep. I was a skier. I started skiing when I was two. Um, once I got onto the ski patrol, I actually transitioned over to Telmark skiing. And so I was a Telmark skier for 10 years. And then when I moved to Oregon, I went back to Alpine. And uh, ah. But I, I dabbled with, with uh, snowboarding. I always had a snowboarder. I had one of the first Burtons and uh, kind of the wood wood boards with the metal rails. And But Steamboat Springs didn't allow allow snowboarders for some time. Mm -hmm. And so I would ski all day. And then after I got back, I'd go hike up the mountain with the snowboard and 
get a couple runs in at the end of the day. Oh, and so when did photography enter the picture? I was born into photography. I, I was born into a family. My mom and my dad had a dark room from really? the time I was literally born practically. Wow. Um, it was a hobby for both, both of them. And so, yeah, so we spent, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid watching those images appear out of the dark. And I think that's where my fascination grew. I ended up with my first uh, 35 millimeter film camera, uh, a Honeywell Pentax camera when I was 10. Wow. Um, but I had already put, I, I was just thinking about it. I have an album that I shot. It was my first photo album that I still have that I think I shot when I was seven or eight in Yellowstone National. Seven or eight. Yellowstone National Park. Wow. And, you know, it more or less kind of an Instamatic style camera, but shots of the elk and, you know, my sister with a chipmunk and all those kinds of things. Right. But that was the first, you know, kind of grouping of images. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was the kid, the annoying kid who was taking the camera on all the school class trips and yeah. telling everybody we needed to have a slideshow after and forcing their parents to watch. I was, I was that annoying kid, too. Yeah. When you had to have a camera because it wasn't on your phone. Yeah. Kind of. And, so, and, and developing at that age, it's pretty magical watching these images come out of, out of a... That's truly dark. where my love for photography grew, mm -hmm. um, was in the craft. Watching those images come to life. Um, I feel fortunate that, that that's when photography entered my life. Mm -hmm. um, because even today, when, when I look at the book that I just made, and you know, so much of the image and the image process, to me, half of it's shooting and half of it is what you do with that image afterwards, um, which before it was always in the darkroom. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been kind of in our family forever. We had stacks of National Geographics, and, uh, and we were lucky we traveled a bit. And so that kind of developed this, this love of travel and culture and other people and places and destinations that I hadn't been to before and wanting to go. Wow, and getting started so young, when was your first, what was your first book or collection or showing? Or, uh... The first little portfolio was early, early on. I remember I, I submitted a photograph when I was 10 and won the contest for, for that one image, which looking back was hilarious. It was literally a cat standing on a fence post, you know, like from a low angle looking up at this thing. And I was like, not that impressive, but I don't know. I just was always really motivated in documenting and telling stories. Um, and then I ended up going back to photography school a bit late. I mean, I had taken um, darkroom classes and uh, processing classes and photography classes all the way along anytime I could mm -hmm. from the time I was 10 all the way through college. I grew up in a somewhat business-oriented family and photography to me was in many ways, it was a hobby. And, and I didn't, it took me a while to believe that I could turn a hobby into a career. Okay, well that's, I was gonna say, well, so when, when was that moment? When did you think that this hobby could become a career? So, so interestingly, back when I was 10, like we were talking about, I, <laughs> another thing happened. And everyone finds their calling yeah. at 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I, I do have a, an interesting last name, Cannon, which I guess made my life choice somewhat easy, but. Or difficult. Possibly, right? Yeah. But I remember there was a moment when I was 10, it, 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 hanging out with a great friend of mine, Duke Beardsley, who's now a contemporary Western painter. And the two of us just kind of rode out life together in many ways. And he, uh, he sat on his bed one day when I was in his room and took a pencil and drew a life-size horse on his wall. And it can kind of transform that wall into a piece of art. 
And ever since I saw that happen, um, I started to believe like, wow, like this could be more than just toting your camera around on weekends or, or trips, you know? And obviously I didn't know that at the time. And then years forward, still hanging out with the same guy, he ended up at Art Center College of Design and we were having a conversation one day and he, and I said, hey, I think I want to go back to school for photography. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you need to come check out Art Center. At the time, I was taking pre-meds in Denver, which to me was the transition after uh, ski patrol, mm -hmm. um, thinking rather than delivering people the rest of my life, I'd want to be on the receiving end and helping people get back to the slopes. Or, um, and, and so I was taking pre-meds. I was in a chemistry class. And we were studying, we actually had to build a pinhole camera one day. And we were studying the chemical process by which the photograph comes to life. Okay. And the second that day happened and I was running around downtown Denver with that pinhole camera, something just shifted and I basically called up Duke and I said, hey, I need to come visit. Mm -hmm. um, that was in December and by January, I had moved out to California, was, had been you know, admitted to Art Center College of Design and started there. Oh, wow. Um, I was 26 at the time. I think that's about the average age of most of the students that go through there. Oh, Zip, really? Yeah, it, typically older, um, and, and they like that because there is just a hyper-focus on, on getting the most out of it with the purpose of you know, becoming a professional, whatever field you choose. And now, is this before or after... I read that you had uh, participated in the New York City Marathon and put together a collection of pieces that you took during that experience. Yeah, so by the time I ended up uh, going through Art Center, which is a four-year program, but if you go straight through, you can finish in two and three-quarters years. And so that's what I did. And towards the end, um, I had a mentor there, a guy named James Fee, uh, who basically said, don't start working on your portfolio until we get way down the line. Just concentrate on shooting and shooting and shooting. So by the end, we... we uh, pulled all these images together and I decided when I graduated that one of the things that I wanted to do because I hadn't run a marathon before was to go to New York. So I had these portfolios then that were built and I started contacting people in New York City and went out there and ran the marathon and, and took two cameras with me. And so the, I kind of came up with this plan. I was going to basically shoot one shot per mile and then do a little flip book and then all of the people that you know I met in the industry while I was there, I would then send them that promo, which would then be current um, and show that I could do all these things and shoot and uh, kind of simultaneously. And so I came out with, you know, I made 50 of these little flip books and sent it to everyone that I met in New York at the we time. Running the marathon with cameras hanging on. And they were small, more <laughs> instamatic style. Okay, but still. But yeah, <laughs> but I was, I was definitely thinking a lot about shooting while I was running, which probably helped me get through it. I was well. just going to ask, was that actually a, a helpful diversion and, and get your mind out of the physical pain yeah. and suffering? Although I think, I think I ended up running a few extra miles because I was, you know, zigging and zagging, you know, oh, part of the time. But, uh, but I think that that's just been kind of the journey in many ways, it, it, you know, and kind of shows the way that I like to approach a lot of my photography, which is kind of by just being in the, in the mix not shooting it from, you know, with a zoom lens from a thousand yards away, but to get right into the action of it. Yeah, I read that you said you described it as the perspective of a participant. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, for for the stories that I shoot, so many of them have, have culture built into them or conservation. All of them have people included. 
And what I realized early on was that the way to a really great story is, is through the people. And the only way you get to know the people is to get close, which then translates to the kinds of equipment that I like to use, which oftentimes, you know, sure, I'll use the long lens for certain shots or the drone to get the overall. But I think ultimately, if you want to get close to the story, you got to get close to the people, which means then you're in tight and then they, you know, they give you acceptance and then there's trust and then they know that when the camera comes out, they can be themselves. And so that's, I think that's, that's the key in my success has been the ability to kind of tell a, an honest story through gaining the trust of the local people. And then once you're in, then they want to show you what their real world is like. And then they take you to the places they wouldn't normally show people and invite you to the dinner parties and you go to the weddings and mm-hmm. um, and then all of a sudden the story starts to have a, a feeling and a soul to it that you wouldn't get as an outsider. That's so insightful too because every people act differently as soon as they're being watched right. and in any capacity, particularly right. photographed. Right. So how do you put people at ease? Yeah, that was always a family complaint in my family that my mom wanted us heavily posed. Well, and the second that the camera, <laughs> the second that the camera comes out, Everybody starts to think about the side of their face that looks better in the picture or the, or the, you know, the expression that they yeah. think is the one that they should right. be sharing. Or when, what they want to show rather than what they really feel. Right. That's one thing with this book that I'm, I'm proud of. I feel like when I look through it, I, I start to feel like I get to know these people more. And now, who are some of your mentors? Was any, did you com- devise this completely on your own, or were you drawing upon some, of, some other people that maybe inspired you in school? Yeah, I mean, I've had mentors throughout my whole life. I mean, the first that I have to name is my dad. Hmm. Um, he's eternally creative. Even though he's a business guy, he's an artist at heart. He made all of the, everything that was made out of wood in our house when I grew up, he made it. Oh, wow. Cabinets, tables, my, my waterbed. <laughs> waterbed. Uh, maybe that's where my love of surfing actually started. Yeah, but he. Uh, so, so yeah. So and then now he's he's like a full time ceramicist. Oh, really? He doesn't sell his work, but all of his friends, you know, want it. And uh, every piece of dishware, dinnerware, cups, mugs, everything was made by him. So I have I you know he he was a, a great guide. My sister's creative. Um, my mom is creative as well. And then when I think about photographers. There are many, many photographers that I admire. Um, we, we talked a minute ago about Ansel Adams. I mean, he, he was the technician mm-hmm. that I looked to. Irving Penn, to me, is the greatest kind of fashion uh, meets portraitist that, that I respond to. And so, you know, this project was guided with him in mind. War photojournalists, uh, oh, Ro- sure. Robert Kappa, Dmitry Baltermans, Russian war photojournalists. Um, I mean, I could go on. Gordon Parks is another photographer I really love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cedric An- Angelus, a contemporary of mine that, that I went to photography school with. And then I get into people that I admire who were printers, who led, led a lot of my printing aspirations. My mentor, James Fee, or uh, people that, you know, you wouldn't know, Leslie Kossoff. Ron Landucci does all my printing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there. I mean, then there are athletes that I could mention. I mean, lots and lots of people, but I'm always drawing my love for these things that other people are doing and trying to understand what it is that I'm so attracted about through, through them. And let's go back to Ansel again just for a moment because we look at a picture and we think of the photographer took it 
And I like it's very easy to just think that that's the only component. Right. But you were talking about how you enjoyed not just his photography, but you it, it achieved a whole nother level of significance when he became a better developer. Right. And now you're talking about printers as well. So right. there's sort of like three separate batons. The art of photography doesn't just happen with the click of the shutter. That's one part. How well do you, how do how well do you frame a, a certain scene? How well, well do you understand light? Uh, the moment that's happening, anticipating what's happening, but then once that's frozen in time, half of half of the art to me comes in in the printing of the image, and being able to visualize that also kind of on the front end a little bit, like knowing what you're trying to achieve and ultimately what you're trying to create. I think all of those years that I spent in the darkroom, starting when I was a kid, established this relationship to the craft behind photography. Mm -hmm. And in all of that, in those thousands and thousands of hours along the way, are then kind of incorporated into a project like this, or this book where where you look and, you know, everyone asks questions, well, how did you do that? How did you achieve yeah. that? And it's just, in many ways, an understanding and, and this knowledge because of all the time that I've spent doing it, my understanding in the darkroom, and then just hoping that it all comes together. And then there's this a ton of experimentation that goes in to getting those first few images the way that you like it, yeah. and then sticking to that, deciding that, yep, this is, this is where I'm going to take this whole project so that they're is kind of a continuous continuous relationship between the images all the way through, mm -hmm. where you're not looking at it going, yeah, it looks like he used some camera for this, another camera for this, other kind of lighting for that. Uh, some continuity, yeah. Yeah, because uh, a lot for North, a lot of the even though I used the same backdrop, and and so much of that book was photographed in Cole Christensen's barn up in Wailua, <laughs> I got through enough of the portraits and realized like in order to get the other third of the people for this project, I'm gonna have to actually make these make these things happen quickly and make it easy on people. Right. Not have them drive a half an hour or across the island and have to go to people. And so then the backdrop ended up being set up in the bushes at Waimea Bay or it, from the trees at, at three tables mm -hmm. um, or in someone's backyard. Um, and so when I look at this book, what's, what's kind of fun is I see beyond the backdrop and I remember, oh yeah, that was on the fence up at J.O.B.'s house in his backyard or um, KLEE, the cover shot was shot in, you know, five frames um, at Waimea Bay at the 2019 uh, Eddie opening ceremony. Just a quick, hey, can I grab a few shots of you? And this is what you get. And this is what you get. So, wow. but the lighting, I believe, still kind of resembles what was happening in, in the more controlled environments where I had more time to work with people. And also screams about what we talked about earlier, your relationship to these people. I mean, the photo was so bare and open. You know, in those moments, that's kind of the testament to all those years being a travel photographer, uh, walking mm. walking up to people on the street saying, hey, can I photograph you? Mm. As someone that you've never met, don't know their name, no relationship to them, and somehow convincing them that, yeah, fine. Right. And then can you let them just let their guard down for a second and get that moment in that environment? And so that helps a lot with being able to capture, you know, someone like Kaylee in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And now during the course of your career, your entire industry went digital. So all this darkroom love you have, right. everything changed. So did you initially resist it or did you embrace it? Because you've ob obviously learned to work with it very well. I was a big time resistor. Okay. Um, I yeah. Why. Yeah, it was really hard for me to give it up because I didn't want to feel like I was giving up 
that piece of it that got me interested in it in the first place. Sure. The craft and the love for being in the darkroom. So it took me a number of years to transition. And ultimately what I did was I started shooting both on assignments. Okay. I was shooting film and I was shooting digitally at the same time. And my goal was ultimately to get to the place where I could publish a story that would have images that I shot on analog and Im images that I shot digitally, have those coexist in a story and be able to essentially fool everyone where no one would know what was the difference. And so that started right. happening. And then at that point, I realized I could start to make the transition and I wasn't going to really lose touch with photograph the photographer that I always had thought I was in some ways. Mm -hmm. Not that there aren't amazing digital applications too, which I started to explore more and more once I accepted it, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I can dip into a little bit of the surf, the, a project where I put photographs onto surfboards. Yes, I like that um, one a lot. Yeah, and that so good. that was a show that's called Surface, and that happened, you know, early in, in 2000s, probably around 2006 or seven. And the boards are beautiful. They're fun, and, and I worked with the shaper, Nick Palandrani. Um, he's, he's out of uh, Carpentria, like south of San, Santa Cruz, uh, and, and a great friend and another you know, mentor of mine, the guy who assisted me for a long time, I said, hey, I have this idea for a project. He's like, well, if you want to do this, i got to introduce you to Nick Palandrani. He's the guy because he can shape any kind of board that you want. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with a line of 15 boards, everything from old-style Bing Pipeliners uh, down to you know Stinger designs and twin fins and kind of you name it to kind of represent almost like a historical progression of surfboards and sure. surfboard shapes. Uh -huh. And then I selected images and and then went out and photographed a lot of images to fit the parameters of the boards, which are obviously very long. And so it's not like a even a typical panoramic shot isn't going to fit a board. So right there, you had to start thinking about like how do you get an image to translate. Um, and so the fun part about that for me was that I had had already all these years of kind of more typical photography exhibits and shows that were much more traditional. Like the first one I had was a focus gallery on Polk Street um, in San Francisco. And it was, you know, black and white images of travel from unique places, right? Mm -hmm. And But the question for me was now with digital, like can we get those images off the walls and present those in a, in a different kind of way? Mm -hmm. And so the images... It landed on the surfboards, and then the the surfboards became the frames. And then those those surfboards didn't have to be mounted to the walls. They could be on a stand, and you could walk around the whole board and see all aspects of the beauty of it, the image being just one part of it. The beauty of digital was that I could print onto a fabric that was very similar to, say, a very thin fiberglass okay. and glass that in and as another layer of strength to the board. But, but those images would roll around the contours and the curves of the board, unlike, like you could never do that with rice paper. Right. You know, you could never lay a whole sheet of rice paper out on an entire stretch of length of board and have it make those curves and bends. It would buckle and yeah. turn. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, this, there's, there are a lot of applications of photography now that are coming with digital that extend beyond just the frame print on the wall. Now, were those, were those just, let's say, art pieces for an exhibit or were they actually sold for surfing i mean were they the concept was functional art okay so good right on and i hope there's some people out there that have surfed them wow i would say i would say most likely most most of those boards are wall hangers most were on the wall right but they're absolutely meant to be surfed and were you trying to to the content of the image trying to match like the personality of the board as well like you know like a big that's a great out. question and yeah. <laughs> the, the, the truth is yes i mean i would look at a stinger design and say what kind of image 
would would match and align with this kind of board. Right. And so that shot has a Galapagos shark that's hitting the surface and, you know, kind of shaking around. So there's turbulence. It's all black and white. Mm -hmm. It's a stinger design, which has this drop in that kind of reminds me of the the form of the shark's kind of body and tail. And and so the board is black. The pin lines are silver. The underside of the board then is where you see the stringer design. And the guy who was doing all the woodwork was a guy, Bruce uh, Gordon. And he he was a cabinet maker. He wasn't by trade making fins and stringer designs. Mm-hmm. But we essentially employed the guy to start making them for us. And so I could go to him and say, hey, for this, this uh, stinger design with the shark image, can we do a, a stringer pattern that has all these little triangles stacked on each other look like shark's teeth? And then, you know, we'll do that and we'll do that kind of between bass and balsa wood, alternate those, and then we'll add a hard stringer, kind of small stringer on the sides of each of those. And um, and so there was this freedom to, to formulate these really beautiful stringer and fin designs wow. that then also related to the images and the feel of the images too. That's so yeah. cool. It's so poetic that it all comes together. Yeah. And do you feel now that the technology, the digital versus analog or, or the old uh, film stock, that it's progressed, that there's something similar to those darkroom experiences, like in the processing afterwards? Yeah, I mean, right now, I just think of my computer as my darkroom. Right. Without having to put my hands on the fixer. <clears throat> right. Which and actually that, is kind of nice. Yeah. I still crave... environmentally speaking, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I still crave the darkroom here and there. But at the end of the day, I, I approach my experimentation on the computer in the same way that I would in the darkroom. You know, what's it going to be like if, if you flash something in the darkroom and solarize it or you dip it in the fix a little bit um, and then turn on the light or, or you know, they're just all these, like a lot of the beauty of photography that I liked ended up coming through these small mistakes that would be made in the darkroom and then they would open your eyes to the possibilities. You can explore and experiment now so much on a computer um, that you can also find your own way. I mean, this book, I would say, is a combination between my love for old photography, like tintype style photography. Mm -hmm. But tintype style photography can also feel really rugged and make people look old. Uh, You know, a lot of people see their portraits and tintypes. Some of them say, yeah, they're beautiful. And others are like, ah, it doesn't look like me here. So how how do you... kind of combine that type of technique. But then all, because it's a digital format, I don't have to go so far. And maybe I can pull that back a little bit and create a style that right. is just a little more uniquely my own. And com- you always have the undo button as well. Right. That is true. <laughs> you don't have that in it. D- yeah. I mean, in Photoshop before, there were only 25 undos, but now I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah. And there's none with chemicals in a dark room. Right. It's just do. Which makes each one of those prints that you make in the dark room very one of the kind. Yeah. yeah. And you know, now you can get an image where you like it, and digitally you can pump 100 out, and they're going to look exactly right. the same. But you make 100 prints in the dark room, right. and everything is unique. And similarly, I, I, I talked with someone who was a sports photographer where you only have so many frames in your camera, so you're really a cut being economical with right. when do you snap that photo because right. you don't want to miss it, right. whereas now we can take a 1,000 photos. So I guess my question is um, the idea that now everybody has a, has, a, has a camera on their cell phone, is that good or bad for photography in general? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, first of all, even if you shoot a thousand photos, doesn't mean you're going to get a great shot. And no. 
And I think, again, the beauty, the beauty of starting with film for me, and because when I was shooting 220 and 120 cameras, you, you only had 10 or, you know, 10 or 20 shots per roll. Mm -hmm. And so it, there was a lot of value in that. I would go on these trips for three weeks and take 80 rolls of film, and you just knew you were limited. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, it's like the art of anticipation became really important yeah where you're anticipating you know like there's that theory that if you see if you see something amazing happen and you take a shot of it you miss right because that's gone so right you have to actively be shooting that photo before it even happens in order to get the moment yes and so how do you anticipate that and and in doing that more and more and more uh it just becomes kind of second nature right and then when i started shooting digitally just because i had the ability to shoot a thousand frames i never did like well, even when I shot the Eddie last year, well earlier right. this year, um, I didn't have thousands of shots of every sequence. I'd shoot three, five, maybe ten mm -hmm. of a certain wave, but I was always going for the moments. Right. Less editing, less stories. Sure. But only through experience were you better trained to to get those moments. Right. Yeah. Oh. Exactly. All right. And so let's talk about how did this come about? How did how did North come about? So North. Um, started originally when I graduated from Art Center, my sister gave me a photography book that was done by a photographer named Patrick Carew. And the book was called Surfers. And that book combined black and white portraits of surfers with color action images. Oh. And the day I got that book, I looked at that and said, one day I'll do a surf book or a book about the culture of surfing in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And most likely this is going to be kind of the inspiration for that. His book, it, all the portraits are environmental. They're not shot on backdrops, and it's, it's it's they're shot globally. So those images come from lots of different locations and places. But there there are certain similarities. Interestingly enough, the publisher that I you know am working with here is Damiani, which I feel incredibly fortunate that that we aligned. When when we were having our first meeting, I was talking to them. I said, you know, one of my favorite photographers of surf photography is Patrick Carew and and they said you know we're doing a reprinting of his book um, in a book set which just came out literally this past fall hmm. and so the fact that this this uh, publisher Damiani had been reproducing the same book that had kind of inspired me since 1999 the timing I kind of just gives me the chills thinking about it yeah. it, it, it was really unique a unique moment and then Damiani itself, um, they gave me 100% of the freedom to lay it out, choose all the images, choose the size. And so th that was great. I remember going to the uh, retrospective for Irving uh, Penn in New York City at the Met and reading that all of his early books he self-published because he wanted, he wanted the viewer to see what he saw. He didn't want it to get edited down by 20 different people. Mm -hmm. And so that always kind of resonated with me. And then after I connected with Damiani and they gave me kind of free reign to edit and, and select images and process everything, choose the writers and stories. And that freedom to me makes this book really uh, even more exciting. Mm -hmm. um, but but this book just, it, it's evolved kind of through my love of all of my favorite things, surfing, culture, um, and photography. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are th three of my favorites, and they're all 
right here on the pages. And then because of this deep connection that I've had with the island and the North Shore since I was born, um, I ultimately believe that I wanted to get to know this place better. And like I mentioned before, I think the goal is to do that through the people. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what I love about the book is that it, it really started and grew organically. A great friend of mine, Mike Peach, uh, he's he's one of the better big wave surfers there are on the, on the coast here. And, you know, a lot of the general public wouldn't know who he was, but Mark, Mark Healy sure does, and KLE sure does, and everyone in this book sure does. He's, he's always right there. So we were in Steamboat Springs um, in 2018, and I went up to Mike and I said, hey, I want to I put together a book, and I want to have this book be about the North Shore and about the watermen, you know, and women from the North Shore. And, um, and he said, uh, all right, well, when do you want to start? I said, I want to start. Like, let's get this going, yeah. right? And so a month later, you know, he had organized Cole Christensen, you know, with Cole Christensen. And so we had the location through Cole and we, we chose a date. And Mike, you know, in true Mike style, like the night before was rounding people up. And that day we had Mark Healy, um, we had Ben Wilkinson, we had Mike Peach, we had Jock Sutherland, uh, we had this, you know, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about all these folks that walked in the door that day. There were right. between 10 and 12, right? And, and that, that day, the project started. And it's off to a hell of a start. Yeah. <laughs> and so the very first shot I have in the book is Mike Peach surfing an outer reef. That's the first action, actual first shot that was shot in 2009, right before the Eddy, on the, on the Eddy day. And then the first shot, the first portrait in the book is also of Mike that was shot on that first day in February of 2018. Along, along with all these incredible photographs, there's in, a, a host of inspiring stories by uh, all these living surf, surfing legends. So how did yeah. that come to be incorporated? And were there testimonials that were similar like that in the book that inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think this book, if it were only images, mm-hmm. would be an interesting book. But I think once you incorporate, include all of these stories um, in combination with the images from all of these people that are, to me, inspiring in so many different kinds of ways, that, that to me is where the power of this book lies. It's... Yeah. You know, it freezes all of that in time. So many of the po- photos are so her- heroic. Yeah. And, you know, big wave surfing, this huge b- bravado. But the stories are very humble and share moments of doubt and fear. And I found it to be a really wonderful balance to the strength of, yes. these, of these photos. And I find it gives a break point. You know, you're going through and then all of a sudden you get to the story and you can take a moment. Right? Yeah. And, and so... That all evolved. I mean, I knew halfway through shooting this that there needed to be some kind of a text um, to create context. And I, went, I, I called up Mark Healy one day and I said, hey, if you're going to have anybody write this book, who would it be? And he said, you know, without question, it would be Steve Hawk. 30 seconds later, there he is, like shooting me a text, you know, intro to Steve Hawk. Mm-hmm. He, he had worked on many stories with before. Mm-hmm. So... Not that long after, I live in Bend, Oregon, and I hopped in the car, drove down to SoCal, cause, or not to SoCal, to NorCal, because Steve lives in, in and around Half Moon Bay. So I made the drive, met Steve at a coffee shop. We went over in Surf Montera, 
we got out, hung out in the parking lot for a few minutes, shook hands and said, you know, let's do this. And, and then a few weeks later, we were talking and he, he said, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to have the ability to write every single story. I'm not sure of my timing and all this. And, and we said, well, is there someone else that we could bring in? Um, because it might be really interesting to have two voices behind these stories in the book. And so he said, yeah, one of my, one of my great friends down here is Bruce Jenkins. Bruce Jenkins wrote North Shore Chronicles. Everybody on the North Shore loves that book. And, and so the three of us got together and um, we started just going through our list and started to figure out, like, how do we want to approach this? We have 100 portraits here. Are at the time probably 80, and I knew who the the remainder were were going right. to be ultimately, and um, yeah, we started just to think about like what would be a great format here because I knew the book was going to be large. We were trying to fit every story on a single page, and uh, so then we broke that down. We understood we could fit approximately a thousand words per page, and um, and then we just said, yeah, let's do a talk story style interviews, yeah. and 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 just kind of try to get these surfers that we're speaking to, to reiterate experiences they've, that they've had focused specifically on the North Shore. Well, it really works because when you say that it would be interesting to have two voices, as a reader, my impression was that there were 20 voices yeah. because the, you, every story is so personal. I, it never occurred to me that someone else was tweaking them. Right. Well, and, and, and the, the beauty to me in working with them is that there was no ego, ego involved at all. Yeah. Um, the stories are purely... Other than the bios, you know, their voices yeah. are in the bios. Yeah. But when you get into the heart of the story, and, and now obviously I've met everyone in here and I'm getting to know everybody in the book. The second that, that, these, uh, that I dive into one of the stories and start reading through it, I really truly feel like I'm just in conversation with that person. I can hear yeah. Dave Wassell's voice yeah. or Mike, Mike Stewart or Mike Peach talking about that rogue wave or Carissa Moore talking about her experiences, John mm -hmm. Sutherland and his mom hacking, you know, his surfboard to pieces with an ax. I, I but love I, clients. But yeah, and yeah, just remarkable. And so I think that's that's what also makes this so relatable. Mm -hmm. um, and the goal, you know, I, I made this for the surfing community here, but ultimately you want want this to transcend beyond that. Yeah. And uh, and speak to people who are non-surfers and have them you know, find an appreciation for this community and culture as well. It definitely succeeds. Another thing that I found so interesting is the, the powerful contrast of, I know most of the portraits are black and white and most of the action shots are color, but, but not always. And in an area of the world where nature is so vibrant, I'm just wondering what speaks to you when you choose to shoot the ocean in black and white. Well, you know, I, in particular. Right. And I, and I spoke to you earlier just about kind of the darkroom journey and the yes. fact that I've been shooting film for all these years. Yes. And so the reality for me is I, when I look out at this landscape, even behind us and see this, you know, see these beautiful skies and I can tell you exactly how that image is going to translate, even though we're looking at it in color, yeah. how that's going to translate to black and white with a certain kind, certain kind of filtration. Okay. Or, you know, back in the day with a certain type of film, mm -hmm. orange filter, red filter, um, how that affects the blues and, you know, the reflection off the water and all those kinds of things. And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe I've always loved black and white because I think it leaves part of the story to tell up to the viewer. You know, you're not given everything. True, and so you're you're allowed when you're looking at those images to have it take you places, which oftentimes have nothing to do with 
the image itself, but it transports people in a different kind of way. But for the book to be entirely black and white, I think there's there kind of ends up being a quiet that happens in black and white photography. It's more contemplative. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking and you're kind of calm and then then the color all of a sudden hits you and it re-energizes, you know, the moment a bit, which I yeah, think... Yeah, there's like a reverence with the black yeah. and white, a, a, a weight to it. Right. And and for the portraits, uh, it's far more timeless. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, the history of, of surf culture far beyond, you know, or before anyone that appears in this book, and we all know that, you know, the ancient Hawaiians were surfing here thousands of years before... Any of us even were thinking about it, obviously. But I think that this this approach keeps you more tied to the history. Oh, uh, I think so. And to the feeling of where this all started. And obviously this book is more focused on kind of the history of, of modern, kind of the dawning of modern surfing. And one thing that's just kind of popping into my mind right now is how unique it is at this particular moment in time that we have these generations of surfers and a bunch of the original pioneers that are still paddling into these lineups and, you know, their images combined with these stories and knowing that Jock Sutherland and Roger Erickson are in here and both of them sh shook hands with the Duke, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard, it's hard not to feel that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm really, I feel really lucky that I started this project when I did because 10 years from now you couldn't duplicate it. Um, and already a handful of the folks that I've photographed in the book are gone, including wow. Peter Cole and um, a dear friend of mine who was, who was my assistant uh, as a travel photographer for 10 years. But he assisted me with half of the photographs here. So, again, if I'm looking beyond the frame, he's in half these images. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that story, to me, is an important one as well. That's an interesting phrase you just put looking beyond the frame because you know what else was happening around this photo behind you and left right up top that's that's yeah. interesting. i never thought of it that way well and and what it took to get each of these images to happen yeah right you know in some cases uh it was a it was a dm or a phone call and i was photographing that person the next day right. or i walk up to the lifeguard tower and i see tao hanneman and next thing you know i'm hanging the backdrop up right outside the pipe you know lifeguard right. tower and in that shot, you can see the lifeguard tower kind of coming through the backdrop. Um, so, you know, those moments were just kind of on the fly. But yeah. in other cases, it was four years of showing up at the eddy, mm -hmm. uh, opening ceremonies, having the conversation with the hose, letting them know about this project, shooting them an image or two every, every year, um, keeping it in the back of their minds. Mm -hmm. They start to, you know, like then know that, who I am just a little bit because a couple posts end up on Instagram and then you know in the ninth hour um, we make it happen 30 days before we go to print but a real long view yep wow yeah and I think I think for the sake of a project like this uh, it took every day of those six years to get everybody to photograph everybody that I was hoping to mm -hmm. photograph for the project and in, and in another sense of what it took to make this happen your camera seems to be everywhere. It's above, it's way below, it's in the middle, it's on the side. You, some you could tell where you were probably on a board just outside of, like, just out of the break. Right. Um, you, you, some must have been drones or yep. helicopters. Absolutely. So, I mean, it pays heed, I think, to the, my style mm -hmm. of being a photographer, which, 
you know, is really storytelling based. Mm. And so being a travel photographer, when you come back up from an assignment, they need every perspective. They need the portrait, the landscape, they need the, the aerial, they need the, the close-up tight details. They want combinations of color and black and white. It's, it's kind of that entire perspective that you bring to the table. And so that's just how I've always approached everything. When I'm sitting on the beach, there are a lot of moments where I'm like, oh man, that would have been a great shot if I had my drone up. Right. Um, that would have been an amazing shot, uh, you know, from down to the point by the lifeguard tower toward logs looking back door. And so I'm always kind of, it's always building on the different opportunities. It, and also, you know, you have 272 pages in this book. You don't want it to feel repetitive. As beautiful as the ocean is. As beautiful it is, as it is, and it's all one location. It's seven miles a stretch. Okay. How do you have seven mile, uh, seven, 272 pages of photographs that feel diverse mm-hmm. kind of enough from start to finish where people don't just want to eventually put it down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want it to be more like you're sitting out on, during the great swell in the lineup and you're constantly wondering, like, what's behind that next wave? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that look like? It it's, it's definitely uh, achieves that. And, and worse completely as a, as a standalone. Do you see it as a standalone or as a, as a step in a series? Because you have other books like, I believe it was Iceland and Cowboy and other um, studies, if you will, I guess yeah. you might want to call them. Yeah, and I think I was, I was thinking about that a oh, lot. Wow, nature's little yep, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Um, yeah, this project uh, stands well on its own. But again, again, because I'm a photographer and a travel photographer, um, and that my world in photography has existed around capturing and documenting different cultures, I feel like this book could be, you know, it just so happens that this is about surfers, mm-hmm. but if it, it could be about cowboys. Yes. It could be about all kinds of things. And the current project that I have kind of underway right now, which is kind of my next step, is uh, cowboy culture, or not cowboy culture, but horse cultures from different parts of the world. Yes. And all, a bunch of those things that you are just mentioning fit into that. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a ranching community, and so um, I have a lot of the Western United States, actually United States cowboy culture covered. But then I also rode with the eagle hunters in Mongolia on horseback for 10 days and and captured kind of their horse culture because they're they're the last nomadic horse people on the planet. And then uh, I went and, and photographed um, in Iceland where at the end of, or before the winter set in, all the ranchers bring their sheep out of the highlands back down into the valley. And then they divvy up all their sheep back to their appropriate ranches so that uh, the, the, the sheep don't freeze to death. Um, and then in the springtime, everybody opens their gates and the sheep go running out and they just go running further and further away as the ice melts into the highlands. And so we brought, you know, over, over the course of five or six days, we brought 25,000 sheep down out of, out of the mountains and into the valleys back to their owners. And so I photographed that experience and I, my approach was the same so far uh, with all of those I've been shooting portraits of all the subjects on the same backdrops to isolate them, you know, the subjects from, you know, their settings and then photographing just kind of their day in the life experiences kind of with them doing what they do. And this sounds almost reminiscent of the marathon where you're running it with a bunch of cameras you, yeah. and we're working with them and trying to shoot at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, Running marathons, herding sheep, taking photos. It's yeah, <laughs> it, it's all, uh, you know, a day's work. Right. Right. Um, but, but I do see that book sitting side by side here 
in a very unique way. Mm. Um, and I think that it could complement this. It's just another of culture, culture of people living and being a certain, you know, way and documenting what that's like. And interestingly enough, you know, I grew up in Colorado, but have this affinity for cowboy culture and surfing culture. And there is a lot of similarity, but, you know, with, with them both. Which, which I'm really curious because there's some uh, riding a wave, riding a horse, nature, but they're also very different. Like, can you break a horse? You would never say that you're going to break a wave, right? right. Like, you're not right. that that sort of dominance. So I don't yeah. think anybody would ever feel comfortable saying, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was thinking about um, kind of that notion. You're say you're a cowboy on horseback and you're you're riding through the landscape. You're ten miles out. Mm -hmm. It's you know ten degrees the snow's blowing sideways and your horse is crossing the river and slips and you fall in, right? right? Or you're on the North shore and it's a 20 foot day and everybody's gone in. You're the last one out and the sun's dropping and you're paddling into one of those bombs and you get caught in the wrong spot and you break a leash, right? Mm. The thing that, that they have in common in those situations is they're 100% reliant on their own abilities, mm -hmm. their own skills, to get through those situations. Got it. Um, and so the cowboy has also like this really unique focus on their particular equipment, saddles, tack, and all that, as the, as the surfer does. Yeah, Boards, see that. leashes, you know, the, the cowboy has their horse, the, the surfers have their jet skis, they have their flotation. And then I also think there's a really unique similarity in that they, they are all we fond, there's this fondness for the outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I just, I feel like it, there, there's just the kind of a uniqueness. I, I feel like the two of them could sit down at a table and have lots, lots to talk about. I would think so too. Yeah. Especially when you put it that way and the ocean and the, and the rugged mountains are both so humbling. Is there one that speaks to you more directly, either powerfully or spiritually? Sure. And I just, one last thought comes to mind also yeah, please. Is with the Cowboys and surfaces with respects to weather. Um, oh, okay. Right. The, the surfers are incredibly astute understanding weather and weather patterns, know when the waves are coming. Sure. As are as are the cowboys because it affects their livestock. And so they they are thinking about weather all the time. And I would imagine as much as you've ridden a wave, it can always behave differently and perhaps a horse as well. Absolutely. Okay. So right. that sort of respect of nature every and horse in every way is different probably a horse is different every day it wakes up on some level i, mean, I would think yeah uh, just like every wave that's rolling in right yeah right. and then your last question oh if uh was mountains or or oh yeah ocean. Mountains. just because so often we try to categorize ourselves if you're a desert person or a mountain person or ocean person, right and you kind of got your foot in both ends i i have an affinity for both but i i think my heart is in the sea mm, um right. i think that no matter no matter where I go, I'm always thinking about how many days it's going to be before I get back to the ocean. Yeah. One of the benefits of Hawaii, when yeah. you actually do leave, it's great to come back from vacation yeah. to, to Hawaii when you live here. Right. I don't know if that was, you know, because I was born a Pisces or because I grew up in the mountains and 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 didn't have as much ocean in my life early on. But, sure. you know, my desire for the ocean is is grand. Is is one more challenging to shoot in? I think they're challenging again in their own ways. Mm -hmm. Um I think I think the mountains are incredibly challenging when you have really cold temperatures. I would think and equipment starts to fail and act strange, but as soon as you throw a housing on in your your diving waves and th there are all kinds of other things there that you're having to kind of consider. But I think the beauty of being a photographer for a long time is you're always tr troubleshooting and figuring out how to kind of get through those 
moments. And you said that your heart is in the ocean. You actually founded an organization to help preserve. Yeah. No to yeah. plastic? No to plastic. You travel to all these places globally and and you leave with all of these images. And the question for me is always like, how do you get back to these places? And we have uh, an issue with ocean plastics and single-use plastics, and it touches every part of our planet, no matter where you go. And so uh, it's always just been an important cause for me, trying to understand and educate people um, about single-use and you know, ways and you know, that we can reduce single-use in our daily lives individually, but through our businesses and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it kind of evolved and, and became a process through educating young people, because at the end of the day, if you change the habits of these kids or get them thinking about it when they're little, sure. the trickle effect of that is, is huge. And, and as we grow older, we become so built in and ingrained into our habits, it's hard to, hard to sure. make, those, make those shifts. Yeah, I can see it. Um, and so, you know, this book's going to give back as well. And this book's going to give back to Kokua um, Foundation here on the North Shore, Hawaii Community Land Trust, and we're going to raise money for Maui fires. And, oh, wow. and so we have a, a number of copies that all the surfers in the book are signing mm -hmm. and autographing. And so once those are complete, then we'll start running a series of auctions to raise money to give back to these causes. Cool. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. With all your travels all around the world, is there anywhere that you that's on the bucket list? Like, what is your bucket list? Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> is there anywhere that you've always wanted to go that you didn't get paid to go and shoot? I want to go to Antarctica. Antarctica, really? Yeah, I want to go to Egypt. Um, I want to spend more time swimming. Egypt's on my bucket list. Swimming with and photographing whales. Okay. I just went to Tonga this last summer. So yeah, there there are quite a few places on the list for sure. Okay. Yeah, I never. Maybe it's because once I moved here, I got so much of the ocean that then I thought, oh, well, a desert might be nice. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> never would have occurred to me before <laughs> that. Any free time, I always ran to the ocean. Right. And uh, so, what was one? Was there a project that uh, that you never thought you were going to be able to pull off that you did? Yeah, well, funny enough, you're looking at it. Maybe, okay, I was wondering right? if this might have been the one. I mean, the question all along was, how do you create you know, trust in this type of community? That's really hard to kind of get your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you just never really know. Can you get 100 people to the table right. and have it be really representational of the overall community whereby the people in the book, when they turn the pages and look at it, feel like, yeah, this is my family, this is my place, this is, this is home. Mm -hmm. It took a long time, but it, it's definitely one of the more rewarding things that I've done in my career. And, and was there a project that you thought, oh, this is a piece of cake, and it wound up really being way more challenging than you ever anticipated? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I just think about photography and the career of photography in general. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I... I, when I started off, I was like, yeah, just get 10 years down the road, get 15 years down the road, and then things are just going to be happening mm -hmm. all the time. Photography, you know, and like all of our careers, you've gone through all these incredible cycles, um, you know, through these recessions in 2007, eight, and editorial, like digital's really changed editorial and, and, and the configuration of that. So I would just thought that it was going to be easier all the way along to kind of know and understand how my photography career would continue to move forward. But I find that I'm, I'm evaluating and reevaluating it in January every year. What is this year going to look like right. based off of the economy, based off of projects that I've done before, where I am in that moment, mm -hmm. and ultimately where I want to end up. Well, January is just around the corner. So uh, dare I say, what's next? 
what's next? I mean, <laughs> the horse the horse culture book is next. The horse culture book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that um, I think because again, I think both these projects really get to the core of who I am, where I grew up, and you know what my loves were from the time I was born. And I had a, and my mentor James B at Art Center. Uh, we were going through this exercise towards the end of my co- my career and or my uh, experience at Art Center, and he said, you know, what were the things that aspire, you know, inspired you when you were little, and um, it was easy to kind of turn back to those moments when I was a kid, like walking around, you know, staring out the window of the truck, driving through Wyoming, and just looking kind of at the vast landscape. A lot of those pieces of my childhood, I think, ended up being where I focused a lot of the energy of my photography all the way along, and with this belief that if I show the work that I love of the people and the places that I love to be in, mm-hmm. that I'm going to end up getting hired to be around those people. Yes. Kind of, you know, all the way along. Yeah. And um, that that will hopefully create a pretty fulfilling experience along the way. Yeah, that you'll so, become identified with the subject matter that you're that most I, interested that in. That I love to shoot. Yeah. And the people I like to be around. And so I feel fortunate that that's kind of worked out. That sounds like a recipe for success, right? Yeah. They say if you love what you're doing, then, then you don't spend a day at work. I don't fully believe that because it's still work. But, you right. Know, but, well, <laughs> it, it is true, but I, I also, you know, it's have a lot of friends who are talking about retirement, and I look at this going, I don't know, I really love doing this. Yeah. If I retire, I'm probably going to still run around with my camera all day long taking photographs, so what's the difference? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. All right, well, this has been fantastic, man. And so where can we get at, at Canon Photography? Yeah, canonphotography.com. And then from there, uh, you can also contact me directly. And um, and then Damiani, which is Damiani uh, underscore um, books, mm-hmm. um, through through the Damiani website, you can also purchase through them. So half of the copies are being distributed through Damiani, and then okay. the other half um, I'm selling direct. And soon you'll have special autograph ones that'll be auctioned off. For yeah, no, and, and those will be beyond just my autograph. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna be filled with the autographs of many of the people in the book. Wow, yeah. really cool. Well, best of success with that and with the cowboy uh, next on the list for Thank you. for next year. And uh, this has been really inspiring. I hope we've got some uh, some next generation photographers to you know maybe grow out of the phone into yeah. into a little bit more uh, a wider wider equipment and and uh, philosophical approach. I mean, a very spiritual approach, I guess. Yeah. Well, I love the conversation. Um, I love the idea of passing on knowledge. Um, I'm happy with, you know, the idea of, you know, talking to some of those kids out there that are interested in pursuing a career like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's meaningful, and thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for bringing this down and showing us, and wish you the best of luck. Big thanks to Brown Cannon for coming down and joining us today. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation and want to see more, make sure you hit like or subscribe on the bottom of your friend, uh, bottom of your screen. And this one you should definitely share with a friend. And in the meantime, mahalo for watching and aloha.